your dad, you know that that's a, that's a constant challenge to, uh, to learn to father well. And if you watch a lot of popular entertainment, uh, dads really seem to take a hit with the characters that are often portrayed. The, the, you know, dads are portrayed as clueless, and because they're clueless, they're pretty much useless. And uh, recently, I guess the last five, ten years, there's been more shows that are uh, giving dads uh, a little better representation. But what, what that does, along with the fact that there's not a lot, uh, not an abundance of good role models for fathers out there, is it challenges us who are dads to uh, father well. And that's something that, that's crucial, not only you know, for ourselves, but for our kids, for, for future generations. In fact, just for our own well-being, uh, research has showed that engaged fathers, fathers who are really involved in their kids' lives, uh, demonstrate a, a higher sense of meaning and purpose in their life. They have more positive emotions in their life. Uh, they oftentimes say that uh, they're happier than they were before they had kids. And as challenging as having children can be, uh, these results came uh, to a surprise to researchers because a, a lot of times people look at fathers and go, gosh, being, father, it's a, being a father is a, like being a mother. It's a thankless job, and it's just something you have to do when you have kids. The truth is it's a, it's a joyful task when you can, when you can see it uh, in its proper light. So I want to talk today is about being a good dad fathering well. And there's, even if we don't have as many good role models as we like, uh, we have this resource in the Bible of our Creator God, our Father, who's this amazing model for what fathering well looks like. And there's a parable that's, that's familiar to almost everybody that's, you know, had any sort of intersection with church and faith, there's a parable called the parable of the prodigal, and it's in Luke chapter 15. So if you could open up your Bibles to Luke 15, uh, in the chair seats in front of you, underneath there, there's paperback Bibles, and uh, look like this. Luke's back in the New Testament. I'll give you the page number here. 726. So we're going to start reading at verse 11. And we're just going to read to verse 24. We're not going to read the whole parable. But as we read this parable, I want to show you three crucial ways that, that fathers and mothers, but particularly fathers, can love their children that will make a profound impact in their lives. So if you're a dad, pay attention. If you're a mom, pay attention. If you're single, pay attention. This... There isn't anybody here that this won't speak to, especially as we get to the end of the talk. So let's start reading in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. He had these two sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off, for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out, go back to my father, and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. 
Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now the rest of the parable tells the story of how his brother, the rest of the story is how his brother was really upset at how his father had welcomed this son who had uh, just kind of went down the wrong path. So there's three things that this father does that are really crucial. And there's lots of ways that we need to demonstrate love to our kids, but there's three here that stand out in this that I think we can draw from. First is this father connected with his son emotionally. This father connected emotionally with his son. Secondly, the father invested in his son consistently. He'd invested in him earlier, see him continue to do it here. Third, the father celebrated his son openly. So he connected with him emotionally, he invested in him consistently, and he celebrated him openly. So let's look at each one of these. So in verse 21 and 22, it says, uh, The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's probably just full of shame. His, you know, his, 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 he's a wreck from... Uh, just squandering his, his life, making a lot of bad choices. But the father says to his servants who, who, are right, who are right there with him, apparently, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And I'll stop right there. This was an atypical response then and now. This father in that culture we, you know, we're so familiar with this story that we don't really understand how the first people who heard this story would have just at each point through the story stopped and going, what? What? What did he do? The father did what? It, it would have just caught their attention. The way that the characters in this story were sketched and the way they responded were very unusual. This father had been publicly humiliated by his son, who basically said to him, I don't want to have anything to do with you. All I want is the money you have so I can get on with my life. And so his dad had to liquidate part of his estate because it wasn't like back then uh, in, that, in an agrarian culture where they had a, a lot of cash. Their, their, their estates were not fluid. So they had to sell property, real property, so he had to divide his estate, which the older son would have gotten two-thirds and the younger son would have got one-third. So can you imagine right now, you're a person in your 50s and you've got grown kids and one of your two sons comes to you and says, I want part of my estate. Or I want, I want my estate, I want my inheritance now. And so you have to sell your house. You have to uh, liquidate hard currencies and, and you give it to your son and then he takes off. And then he squanders it, completely wastes it, crashes and burns. And to do that was a humiliation for a dad. It was heartbreaking for him. It, it would have impacted the community because uh, landowners like that would have, would have hired other people to work their property. And all of a sudden, they have to get rid of some of their assets. Well, people are going to lose their jobs. And there was a a practice back in that culture where when someone had made those kinds of foolish choices and had betrayed their family and really hurt their community in substantial ways, if they came back to the community, the people in that village who would have seen that young man walking towards their village, they had this little ceremony and what they would do was, as the young man approached the village, they would, the, the, the people in the village would walk out to him and they'd take a big clay jar and they would shatter it. And it was a symbolic representation of them rejecting this person and saying, you're never welcome here. You have, you've rejected us, we reject you. Get out of here. And it was called Kazaza. And so... This father saw his son from a distance, and he didn't want his son to be rejected by the community. 
He ran out ahead of the welcome committee that would have welcomed that son to never come into the village again. And on top of running out after his son, men in that culture did not run, period. It was undignified. Yet this, this father was willing to put aside the humiliation he had felt first when his son rejected him and left, the humiliation he felt when his son squandered everything that, that his dad had worked for and that his inheritance, which was a terrible, again, another betrayal of your family. And then he was willing to take the, the, the hit in the community to welcome the son back again. And he was willing to humiliate himself by pulling his robes up and running in public. These are all things, you don't think they're a big thing because it's not our culture, but in that culture, those were things that humiliated a person. That, that father's standing in that culture plummeted dramatically when he welcomed the son back. Which is part of the way the gospel works is when God welcomes us back in our sin, in our rebellion, in our guilt, he pays the price. God pays the price for us, just like this father paid the price for his son's misbehaviors. But what the father did is, you can imagine this son is walking towards town. He's in, in tatters and rags. He's, he's hungry. He's traveled a long distance. He's probably on, on the point of collapse. He's full of shame. You know, he's rehearsed this apology to his dad. In the apology, he's basically saying, I know I've completely, I've completely ruined my relationship with you. And I don't even deserve to be your son. So I'm just going to work for you. I'm not even good enough to be called a part of the family anymore. And the father meets him. And the father doesn't just kind of put his hands on his hips and go, yeah, that's, that's all you have to say. He didn't like launch into a lecture he threw his arms around him and he hugged him. He saw the shame that his son was carrying. And he connected with him emotionally. Now there's two things I want you to get out of this. This is really, 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 really important. Our kids need our affection and they need to connect with us emotionally all the time. Have, have any of you ever seen on YouTube there's a, a little video clip called the still face experiment. How many of you have seen that before? A few of the moms have, okay. The still face experiment is this amazing video and it's, it's just a picture of what goes on in, in many houses with, with small children all across the United States. There's a mom and her one-year-old baby and the baby's in a little uh, chair and the mom sits down with the baby, and she's talking to the baby. And, you know, the baby's just responding. This little girl is just responding. She's just happy, you know, and she's, her body's wiggling. And then all of a sudden, the mom goes like this. She turns away, and she looks back at the baby, and she has an, ex an expressionless face. She's just looking at the baby, and the baby looks at her. And the baby's sort of puzzled, and the baby goes through these stages of trying to engage the mom. And so first the baby goes and smiles and wiggles and, you know, just like tries to draw the mom in. The mom just sits there. And then the baby becomes increasingly agitated and upset. And the mom's just looking at the baby like this. No expression. The still, what I call it the still face experiment. She's not angry. She's not sad. Just blank expression. The baby... This, is, this little video is only two and a half minutes long. This is not hours and hours, so they're not a, she's not abusing this child. But she's just looking at her like that. And the baby cannot get a response from the mother. And all of a sudden, the baby starts getting distressed. And the baby starts, like, pointing. Because before, when, when she would point at something, the mom would look to see what she was pointing at. So she goes, she's trying to get the mom to respond. Mom's not doing anything. Then she starts reaching out to her. Then she starts going, eh, eh. Then she, then she starts screeching and she starts crying and she's in this pain. This little baby is in this just 
intense pain because the mother is not connecting with this little child. And all of a sudden, the mom goes, oh, oh, and, and boom, the baby just calms down, and this little bond reengages. But the point of the little experiment is our kids need to connect with us emotionally. Emotionally. And when you saw the pain this little baby was in, and all kids will do that. If you have a one-year-old baby and you put it in, a, in, in its little uh, chair and do this experiment, your baby will do the exact same thing. Now, it doesn't change as kids get older. It just, it, it just get, gets wrapped in with maturity. It gets wrapped in with uh, other aspects of their life. But their, their emotional need to connect with us doesn't stop when they're in that high chair. And point two, their need to connect with us emotionally extends particularly in the area when they go sideways. When our kids start going sideways, they need us emotionally as much as they do when they've fallen and skinned their knee. And uh, I got a little story. There was a, uh, I read in a, a book about a single dad who had a, a five-year-old son who was really a, a good kid, uh, responsible little guy, uh, very responsive, but every once in a while, he would just melt down, just and he would just lose it. And the dad just got to the point where he couldn't handle it. He didn't know what to do. He's a single dad. So he goes to a counselor and begins to explain his story, and the counselor goes, well, you know, when, when kids are that age, or when they're any age, the, the biggest challenge they have is they're not able to manage their big emotions. And when, when they're uh, going through some kind of emotional turmoil that, that might not be apparent to you, that's often what's behind their melting down. And the dad goes, listen, this little guy is really responsible He's a good kid. He's just stubborn and willful at certain times, and he just needs discipline. And I just need help in how to do it. And so the counselor, she says, her name's Tina Bryce, and she goes, let me, let me give you a hypothetical. Uh, you're a good dad, right? He goes, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty good dad. He said, and, and you try to be patient and loving as much as possible. And, and this young dad says, of course, I, yeah, I am, and I'm I actually... I mean, every once in a while, I kind of lose it, and, and I'm less patient than I should be, and less loving. And so she goes, huh. So every once in a while, you're not patient and loving, even though you know your children need you to be patient and loving. And he goes, well, yeah, sometimes I'm like I'm tired, and, or I've had a hard day at work. And, and she goes, so... There are other things that affect you as an adult, even though you know your child needs you to be patient and loving. And the guy starts smiling and he's going, oh, okay, I know where you're going, okay. So you're saying if I'm an adult and my emotions get to me and it affects how I relate to my son, even though I know I shouldn't be that way, are you saying that my son is like a little version of me? And she goes, you got it. See, we're willing to give ourselves that grace and understand that there's times where we're tired, where we're hungry, where we're angry, where we're lonely, but we don't realize our kids don't have anywhere near the capacity to self-regulate that we do. And when they misbehave, we just immediately think, well, they must be little rebels, you know? They just need to get... A good whipping. They need to get a good time out. And the truth is, they need to connect with us. Because a lot of times the problem is, they have a big emotions inside. They don't know how to handle them, and they're acting out. And so when we come alongside them, and we connect with them, they calm down, and then we can redirect them. And the best parenting advice I ever learned, and I wish I would have learned it much younger in my life, was connect and then redirect. 
We address our kids' behavior a lot of times by immediately trying to redirect them. We want them to stop doing what they're doing. And we fail to recognize the role their emotions are playing in the struggle that they're having at that moment. And if we would just step back for a minute and go, what's really going on here? Why is my child acting this way? What possible reason could they have besides the fact they're just willful little demonized creatures? Are they hungry? Are they angry? Are they lonely? Are they tired? Are they sick? So many times our kids' emotions, our kids' emotions are right on their faces, but we don't stop. We just want to deal with their behavior. We don't stop to attune. Well, what this father did, he saw his son and the emotional wreck he was, and he attuned to this young man, and he connected with him, and then he redirected him. And one of the biggest mistakes we can make to our, with our kids is we can acknowledge their emotions and say, stop whining, stop this, stop that. Without helping them deal with those emotions, what we're telling them is, your emotions are bad. And see, we, can, we should say yes to our kids' emotions, but no to the wrong behavior. What would it be like if you were sitting at work and your supervisor came in and made some big decisions that really affected your life and upset you at that moment, and you're in this meeting you can't get out of, and you can't walk away and think things through and calm down, and one decision after another after another is being made that affects you, that's putting more and more pressure on you, and then you're being asked to engage calmly, and you don't feel calm inside, and all of a sudden, your irritation comes out, and your supervisor says, you really need to have that kind of attitude? That isn't helping the meeting here. And you're sitting there thinking, do you even realize what all these decisions are doing to me, but you can't say that? Do you think our kids don't go through that? They go through that every day. And a lot of times we're not stopping and thinking and putting ourselves in their position saying, what are they wrestling with? The biggest part of their lives are their emotions. The lower part of your brain and the upper part of your brain are two important parts of how you process life. And with kids, the lower part of your brain, where all the emotions are surging around, are controlled and managed by the upper part of their brain, which is still developing. It develops until they're 25 years old. And some of you that are here, it's still developing, and you're in your 40s and 50s. We need to help our kids grow that part of their soul. They need us to connect with them. And I'll tell you one thing, last part of this point is, there's a part of you that's, and it's in every one of us, when you're in the face of stress, you have this fight, flight, freeze, faint response. It's autonomic. It is not something that you think about before you have it. When your kids are in the, in the, in the middle of stress, one of the things that research has shown is when you approach them with a with a tone of voice or a facial expression that's angry, like, like that, in milliseconds, that part of their brain, which is already surging with, with tension, gets activated to a higher level. And when you move towards them with that facial expression of, I'm angry, I'm frustrated at you, or that tone of voice, that kicks in, and all that does is make a bad situation worse. They can't help it. It is an autonomic response. So when our kids are, like when that, when that guy, that young man came back, his dad recognized that and he moved towards him with this tenderness and compassion. Because if you do that, your kids, it's going to help your kids calm down and then they're going to be receptive to dealing with the behavior that needs to get addressed. You understand? So we have to connect with our kids emotionally. That dad shows that. This is in this little parable. 
And so all through Scripture, you see Jesus responding to the people this way. Secondly, when, when the son uh, showed up, the father said to his servants, quick, get the best clothes and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And those were three things that what essentially the father was saying, I'm going to give you the best I have again. Because the best clothes in the house were owned by who? The dad. The dad was taking his best clothes and putting it on his son who just squandered everything. And one of the things our kids need is they need us to provide for them our best. They need the best we have. And that doesn't mean... The dad gave him the best clothes he had, but he gave him a ring, which was a a family ring, meaning you're back in the family. He put sandals on his feet because slaves went barefoot. He was saying, you're not a slave anymore because he didn't have sandals at that point because in the land where he had squandered everything, he had become a slave, which that's what sin does to us. When we choose sin, we become a slave of it. We become slaves to habits and attitudes and people and things and processes that rule our lives. But this father was saying, I'm going to give you the best I have. And our kids need our provision. They need the best we have. They need the best time and attention we can give them. Think about that. And when you go through your week, one of the questions you have to ask is, dads, are you spending more time playing video games, doing hobbies, watching TV, doing whatever, than you are giving your kids time and energy and attention? We have to invest in our kids consistently. This dad invested in his son all through his life. His son made bad choices, trucked off, wasted his inheritance, and came back. The dad just picked up where he left off and said, I'm going to keep investing in you. It just shows that you can invest well and still have bad outcomes because we, don't, we can't control our kids. As they grow up, they become adults. They make their own choices. But it's not my job... It's, It's not my kid's job to love me. It's my job to love them. Those of you that are parents. It's not our kid's job to love us. It's our job to love them. It's our job to invest in them. It's our job not to give them more stuff. They want us. And there's times where we feel like, oh, I want to give my kids some more stuff because I'm not there. Then be there. Don't give them stuff. When you give your stuff, your kids stuff instead of yourself, you're teaching them that stuff is more important than other things. Do you really want to teach your kids that? Do you really want to teach them to be part of this crazy materialistic culture we live in? Don't you want them to learn to value people and relationships more than everything else? If you give them stuff instead of yourself, which is what they really need, that's what you're teaching them. The more junk that we give our kids, the, the the stuff isn't bad. It's, the, it's in that transactional moment where we see what our kids need. They need us. They need time with us. We give them something expensive and think they're going to appreciate it. Maybe they should appreciate it. But if it's in lieu of us, you're teaching them a lesson that undermines their character. Don't do that. Give them yourself. The cool thing is, you don't have to have a lot of money to give them yourself and you're going to give them the best thing that they have, the, um, the best thing you have, the, be- the thing that they want the most. I mean, that, there's, that's an unquestionably simple point. So, the Bible often describes us as trees. And if you understand how trees grow, they grow in layers over time. Our children grow in these layers that are marked by the investment of our lives into them. That's what they need. They need our best. They need us to connect with them emotionally, and they need, to in, need us to invest in them consistently. So are, are you doing that? Do you look at your kids and value them enough and demonstrate your value of them enough to set aside things that you like to do for their sake? That's crucial for you as a, as a dad in particular. Third, the father celebrated his son openly. 
And again, this is very atypical. How many of us really feel like people have celebrated us enough? I don't mean that in a narcissistic way. I mean, each one of us are unique and special. And most of us feel like we're just lost in this sea of faces in the world we live in. When this father said something about his son is, when this son came back, the father so valued the son that, that they stopped work and they said, let's celebrate. Now you would think that what would have happened was the son comes back and he goes to work to begin to pay back some of what he'd squandered. No. This father said, no. This son is so valuable. He's so dear to me. I'm going to celebrate. Again, he invested something precious, the fattened calf, and all the time and money and all the accoutrements that would go to a party and a celebration. But he was saying about his son, I don't want your behavior to tell you who you are. I want you to know who you are because of what I think about you. Don't we want our kids who are going to fail enough in life and are going to have enough people say things about them that are cruel and untrue and destructive? Don't we want to be the ones who say who they are and who set their value? Well, one of the best ways to set your kids' value is to recognize it to affirm it, to celebrate it openly over and over and over and over and over again. You can't celebrate your kids too much. You will not spoil your kids when you celebrate little things that they do, character qualities that, 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 they dis, that, that distinguish them. This father understood that. And can you imagine the shame that his son had when he came back home? And this father just took the time to actively challenge that shame and strip it off of him and put clothes on him and then celebrate him and say, I know how you feel. I know how rotten you feel right now, but I'm not going to let that shame define you. I'm going to do the best I can to tell you that that's not how I feel about you. Now, it was costly to the father to do that. You understand? It's, it's hard to do this. It's costly for this. But how many times in your life have you missed being celebrated? All of us. There is any of us in this room that can't say, I was celebrated as much as I needed. We, we, none of us feel that way. We've got to break this cycle and begin to, to challenge that and begin to say to our kids over and over and over, you're, you're of great value to me. Because they're going to go out, if they're surrounded by that kind of thinking and that kind of treatment, they're going to go out and feel like I am valuable. And they're not going to go out and ask the world to tell them who they are. They're going to know, because the most important people in the world to them, us, their parents, are saying to them over and over and over, you're amazing, you're wonderful. Not that we aren't addressing their flaws and their character issues and all that too, but we're not letting that define them. And we're saying in small and big ways who they really are and how God sees them. And we're setting an identity within them that they go out into the world in and they live from. Instead of walking around and going, would you tell me who I am? They're looking for a group of people to, to, to make them feel special and important. And then they'll just, people will exploit them. Do we want our kids to go out and serve and make a difference? Or do we want our kids to go out hungry and needy and desperate, and just be manipulated by this absolutely destructive social culture we live in. We have the power to change that. But we have to celebrate our kids. And that's one of the things this, this father did. And you might not remember this story. Some of you didn't know your Bible well, you will. When Jesus was baptized, when his public ministry was launched, think about this. Up to that point, Jesus had done nothing of any distinction. He had just been another Jew. He goes to where John's baptizing people. He goes into the water. John, his relative, looks at him and sees 
you're the Messiah. And John says to Jesus, uh, I need you to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, we've got to do it this way right now. Baptize me, because Jesus was representing us. So John dunks him under the water in the Jordan River. When he comes up out of the water, remember what happened? It says, the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus. And the the Bible says the Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. He's the one that says to us, we're children of God. We're adopted into into God's family. God wants us. He's the spirit of the affection of God. When you experience the Holy Spirit in your life, one of the things he does is he brings God's affection for us. So the spirit of God's affection fell on Jesus. And then God said, hey, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. God the Father publicly celebrated his son before Jesus did a miracle, did any teaching, did anything of of any distinction. The Father celebrated his son, Jesus. Now the cool thing about this, and this is the transition point, you as dads, the more you get this kind of experience, the more you're going to give it. You understand? You can't give away what you didn't get. Being a dad is not supposed to be, a, like, like I say about a lot of things, it's not supposed to be a white-knuckle experience. It's supposed to be something that's more natural. And the Bible offers us this life of love that we hunger for. Don't you hunger to have a deep connection, a deep emotional connection with God and people? Don't you hunger to have people recognize your worth and invest in you? Don't you hunger to be celebrated among all kinds of other ways that you you need love and I need love? You hunger for those things because that is your destiny. God wants you to experience that kind of life. We were supposed to experience it richly in our families, and, and sometimes we did, but most of the time we didn't. But God says, that's not the last word. That if you come to me through my son Jesus, everything you see him experiencing, like his baptism, is available to you. That you can have this deep connection with God where God gets you. He gets you. You know he understands you. That you matter to him. He meets you where you are. He will redirect your behavior. He will challenge your bad choices bad character, but he will meet you where you are first, just like this father did. He will invest in your life over and over and over and over again. You will be like a tree, like the Bible says. Those who trust in the Lord are like a tree planted by streams of water that flourish and bloom. He will celebrate you openly, just like he did Jesus. And the, the longing you have in your heart, what, what, this picture I'm trying to paint for you today of how to love your kids, you need to be loved that way. Both, both the dads here and the moms here, the men here and the women here who aren't married, you don't have any kids. We all need to be loved this way. That's the, the simple punchline of this parable is that God says, this is my desire for every one of you. If you recognize that longing in your heart for that kind of love, I offer it to you. If you want to come into a relationship with my son Jesus, he's the door that opens and all of that begins to pour into your life through a relationship with him. That this father, that Jesus, this fictional character in this little parable, Jesus was putting the Father on display for us. He says, if you want that kind of love, the Father gives you that freely and richly and and more. Because this son was very surprised when he came home. And that's what faith, that's, that's a metaphor for faith. Is when you come home, and you come back home, when you realize that all the stuff you're chasing after can't give you what you want. All the people that you're depending on and thinking, they're going to give me everything I need. They're not. They're incapable of it. At their very best, they can't give you everything you need. 
But God came into the world and his son Jesus and says, if you, if you welcome him into your life, you can begin to have access to all this love that God wants you to have, the, the very thing that you're longing for. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and one of those things is particularly meaningful to you because you felt its absence. Like you feel like maybe your siblings were celebrated more than you. Maybe none of you in your family were celebrated. Maybe nobody ever connected with you. When, when you got in trouble, when you were misbehaving, you just got disciplined. You didn't get connected with at all. You were struggling in your life, and no one noticed it. No one seemed to care. Probably because nobody cared about them. That was the way they were treated. That's how life works. But this parable is this beautiful picture of a son coming home whose life was a wreck, who's, who said, this, is, this didn't work very well. And maybe you're at that point. Not in as dramatic a fashion as, as this story, but your heart's there. And God just says, come to me. I want to put my arms around you. You just come to me simply the way you are, and I will meet you where you are. And I will love you where you are, but I won't leave you there. God doesn't leave us where, we, where he finds us. He's, he's willing to transform us if we just come to him on his terms. And you as dads, you have to experience that over and over and over yourself for you to be able to demonstrate it to your son and your daughters. And moms, the same thing. But we're talking about fathering well. And for dads, it's particularly hard for us to emotionally connect with our kids. It, it just seems to be more natural for women to do that. And it's, it's a more or less thing. I, I think, you know, there are lots of dads who connect fairly well with their kids, but we never connect as well as we could. And so we have to start in our relationship with the Lord by letting Him connect with us, with the stuff that we're struggling with. From, from the depths of our hearts, just like this son, that's where God comes and says, lay it out. If you're confused, just say, I'm confused. If you're frustrated, just say, I'm frustrated. If you're angry, just say, I'm angry, God. If you say, I hate myself, just say, I hate myself. Don't hide that. That's where God meets you. And then when we connect with him, it begins to change us. Just like the son in the story, when the dad connected with him, his life started changing. So I want to ask you here today, we want to just pray for you briefly. The spirit who came on Jesus that I described at his baptism, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, the spirit lives inside you. He lives in you. But he wants to keep coming and making this love that God has for you real to you over and over and over. Remember, we're trees and we grow in layers. We grow in seasons. And wherever you were yesterday or this week and, and however we're fulfilling your relationship with God was you're at a different place and a different time in your life right now. And you need to connect with God in a fresh way on a consistent basis. You can't just be... Wow, I had a wonderful connection with God, you know, two weeks ago, six months ago, four years ago. If you're living off that, you're not doing well if that's what you're living off of, no matter how wonderful that moment might have been. Every day, we need to connect with God in a deep, personal way. So we're going to close the service here in just a second. I want to invite you, before you go, we want to pray just a simple prayer over you a prayer of the Father's blessing, and just say, God, we pray that, as, if, if Dick came forward here, I would say, Father, put your spirit of adoption and love upon Dick in a fresh way, and, and fill his heart with that love that you have for your son Jesus. May it fill Dick's heart as he believes in Jesus today. And we just pray just a simple prayer like that over you. But the key is, we have authority to pray and release God's grace in your life. You've got to open your heart up for it. You have to open your heart up for it and let it begin to, to go in there. 
And, and I point this out often because I think it's really relevant. We tend to be able to acclimate any kind of environment. I mean, I've lived in central Ohio now for 34 years. I've barely acclimated to cold weather here. Barely. I grew up in the south. Very warm weather. Still getting used to cold weather. But, but I've come to, at times, I even enjoy it. I don't like to shovel snow. Not sure I'll ever, you know, appreciate that. But it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. But if I had my druthers, I'd snap my fingers, and there would never be snow here again. Ever. I would snap my fingers, and no one would even ever remember what snow was. So none of you would be bitter at me that loves snow. But I can't. I can, but I'm acclimating to living here. And I love it. It's home now. This is, this is home. My kids are born here. It's home. A lot of you, your home now is in this place where you're used to just living this one step in front of the other existence. God is real in my head, but he's not very real in my heart. He's really real in my head. I know a lot of true things about God, but the truth I have is not always very real to me. And let me tell you something. That distinction is, is unnatural. It's unnatural. When we have a truth and reality gap, it's because we have acclimated ourselves to our circumstances in life that were not what God wanted them to be, and we've gotten used to it. And then we accept it. And then we live the one foot in front of the other kind of faith where we wonder sometimes at a certain point, we go, why am I doing this? God's not really real to me. But we've had all these defenses and ways of living on crumbs in our relationships, and we think God's like that when he's not. But we have to open our heart up. We have to be willing to make ourselves vulnerable and go, God, I don't want it to be this way anymore. I'm going to press into you until you meet me. I'm going to keep pressing into you. Like Jesus said, I'm going to keep. He urged us to keep knocking, keep seeking, and keep asking until he meets us. And it's not because he can't immediately meet us we have to begin to come to terms with all the defenses that we put up in our life to kind of try to hold our lives together when we're not connected to God very deeply. So this is a way that you restart the rhythms of your life where you connect with God. We urge people constantly, come to fellowship regularly. It's one of the ways that you get reminded who God is what he has for you. It's easier to seek him with your, when you're with a group of people than it is by yourself. It's easier to experience his presence. Over the 30-something years that, that since we planted this church, I've had hundreds of people walk into our church when it was in a house near the OSU campus, when it was in a school down in Hilliard, when it was in uh, all... We, this is the 11th building we met in in the course of our church and every single one of them, from hotels to, you know, you name it, other churches and Sunday afternoons, people would walk in and they would experience God's presence and they'd start weeping. And they would go, what is that? And I'd go, you're just in God's community. He's real. It's, we're not special. You're just experiencing that wherever people gather in his name, his presence is there. It's easier to experience his presence and connect with them when you're with other believers, other like-minded people who want to do that. But so many of us, we're not, that's not the rhythm of our lives. We don't have a daily rhythm where we turn to him and say, God, I'm going to carve out time for you. Just some time to listen to you, to read your word, to wait before you. But we have time for a hundred other things. And then we wonder, why is my spiritual life, this one foot in front of the other, kind of just dull, boring thing, when that isn't what God mean, ever meant it to be? He doesn't mean our marriages to be like that. He doesn't mean our friendships to be like that. He doesn't mean work to be like that. He doesn't mean anything to be like that. He gave us senses. 
Our senses are alive with possibilities. Do you think God is boring? Do you think, do you really think God's boring? The way we live, you think we do. Because we give so much time to these things that they're not bad things. But compared to God and connecting with him, they're just shallow. But God, God will just sit there and go, okay, I'm not going to force anything on you. And in this story, you see the father, he's just like waiting for his son. You know, every day he'd probably take time off work and just go look down the road. My son went off that direction. He's waiting for the son to come trudging back. And so I want to ask you to do that today. And you may not be in that bad a shape. But are you living in, with a big, true, real gap with God? You can begin to close it just by saying, God, I don't want it to be this way. I don't want it to be this way. So why don't you stand? And uh, like our small group leaders and prayer team people, why don't you guys come up front? And uh, I just want to pray and ask you to, to pray with me for a second. And then we'll be up here, and if you want prayer, uh, we're going to hang around, and we're just going to pray a short prayer over you, unless you want prayer, a little, you know, something longer or some other need. Uh, but I want to just encourage you to let God in for a moment here. So put your hand over your heart, uh, one hand or two hands. Just put it over your heart for a second. Father, I want to pray for each of my brothers and sisters here this morning, right now, with the authority of the name of Jesus Christ, that is, they put their hands over their hearts right now, that your spirit would take truth that they've heard this morning, that's awakened them or, or sparked them or spoken to them in some way, that they would hear that's your voice. They would hear your voice in that and recognize it. And Lord, you would help them to respond to you in whatever way you're speaking to them right now, whatever way you're trying to awaken desire in them, whatever way you're trying to draw them. And Father, as their hands are over their hearts here, I pray that they could begin to experience a deeper connection with you, that they know right now you're attuning with them, that whatever they feel, whatever struggles they're having that, that they can't show any of us that are here, whatever burden they're carrying that, that you want to understand it and you do. Lord, I pray as their hands are over their hearts that right now they would know that you are deeply and constantly investing in their lives, that you give them your full attention, your very best, that you've never put them on the back burner, that you're right there. And Lord, whatever keeps them from recognizing that, experiencing that in a fresh way right now, I pray that that would just be pushed aside, that you would just take that obstacle out of the way. And last of all, Lord, I, I thank you that you delight in each one of these men and women standing here today, whatever age they are, whatever station in life, Father, I pray that they would have a sense of how much you delight in them and that you celebrate their lives. I pray that, that 